Amen. Glad you caught that. Am I on? Okay. Uh, Two quick things. If you didn't get handouts, we have some back there. There should be some left. Raise your hand and someone can get them to you. Second thing to remember is that next Sunday evening we will be over in the chapel in the Ed building. So make sure you remember that. Turn to Philippians 2. We will get there in a moment. Um, Tonight's sermon, Greg paved the way a few weeks ago when he said this is not really a sermon. It's more of kind of a lecture. And this is what this is. It's going to be a... uh, sort of a lecture type thing. So if you get up and leave, I won't be offended. Um, Jesus might, but I won't. He won't be. He won't be. Um, He won't be at all. And some of you will have to get kids, I think, at seven if we go over. So I am okay with that. Let's pray and we'll start. Father, thank you that as we keep our eyes and our hearts and minds stayed upon you, you give us rest. Would you Help us tonight as we go back in time to 451 A.D. and where we will see your sovereignty clearly at work. Uh, May we be a people who always remembers that others have gone before us and have paved the way. And may we look to the past, God, and what our forefathers in the faith have said about you. And may we learn from their wisdom in Jesus' name. Amen. What happened at the Fourth Ecumenical Council at Chalcedon in 451 AD is nothing short of a miracle. So imagine 400, I mean, imagine 520 bishops gathering to deal with such a complex issue, the incarnation of. Of Jesus Christ. Imagine 520 bishops gathering to discuss what theologians call the hypostatic union. Imagine 520 bishops gathering to discuss what John 1.14 means when it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Imagine 520 bishops gathering to discuss the God-man Jesus and what it means that Jesus is made up of two natures, 100% God, 100% man, united in one person. Then imagine all 520 bishops unanimously agreeing on how the two natures, God and man, come together in the one person, Jesus Christ. Imagine all 520 bishops trying to decide where to eat lunch every day during the Council of Chalcedon. Now imagine them all agreeing on how the two natures of God, two natures of God and man are united in Jesus Christ. It's amazing and it's miraculous because it did happen. They all did agree on the council of Chalcedon. It smells like sovereignty to me. One of the key players at Chalcedon was a bishop named Leo of Rome, born in 400 A.D., died in 461 A.D. This is the Leo who talked Attila the Hun out of attacking Rome, which is why he's also called Leo the Great. He was influential politically, but he was also very influential theologically. He had a huge influence on the council of Chalcedon, and he wasn't even there. In a letter written prior to the council, Leo expressed what has become the standard definition in describing the incarnation. Two natures in one person. 
Leo's letter has come to be known as Leo's tome. The word tome is usually used to describe something that's lengthy or weighty, like a book. But Leo's letter was only about seven pages. But it's called Leo's tome because of the weight that it has theologically, because of the way he describes the incarnation of Jesus. Now, before we get to Chalcedon in 451 AD, let's back up a little bit and see some of the events that led up to it. Do you remember Eutyches? We looked at him last week. Eutyches believed that Jesus had two natures before the incarnation, that Jesus was God, the eternal son, but that he also had a human body, which is not biblically accurate. Jesus was just God, the eternal son. He did not have a body before the incarnation. But Eutyches believed that Jesus had a body before the incarnation. And then when he became a man, at some point, the divine part of his nature gobbled up the human part and absorbed the human part. And Eutyches believed that Jesus became this third thing. Eutyches believed this. And he was declared a heretic by the Synod of Constantinople in 448 A.D. But Eutyches had a friend, a very manipulating and maneuvering friend by the name of Dioscorus, who was a bishop of Alexandria. And he sought to undo the council's decision that had declared Eutyches a heretic. Dioscorus began stirring the theological waters. He probably went on Facebook and all of the comment sections started saying things and kind of got the theological water stirring so much that Emperor Theodosius II called a council at Ephesus now one year later in 449 AD to settle the issue and to rediscuss the recent decision where they had declared Eutyches a heretic. This council became came to be known as the Robbers' Council. And you'll see why in a moment. It was because this council was rigged. Dioscorus had all of his friends, his supporters, those who believed Eutyches and his understanding of Jesus, he had all of them show up, and he rigged the outcome in advance. They reinstated Eutyches to ordained office, and they were able to pull this off because Dioscorus had been appointed president of the assembly by the emperor, and he was given the authority to determine who was allowed to speak. So when Leo's friends show up with Leo's tome, his letter defining the incarnation of Jesus Christ, Dioscorus basically told them to, sh- to shut up and you can't speak. This This council then that was rigged, called the Robbers' Council, declared that the doctrine that Jesus had two natures, that he was God and man united in one person, they said, that's heretical. Dioscorus then dispatched an armed guard to pressure Flavian, he was a bishop in Constantinople, into signing the decision of the council. Flavian refused because he said, no, I believe that Jesus has two natures, God and man united in one person, and that it's not heresy. And because Flavian did not sign it, those guards beat him up so severely that he died a few days later. Even Leo's friends were beaten up. Leo was angry and called this council the robber's council. He protested, but to no avail. Theodosius II in his court said that the matter was settled and that anyone that believed that Jesus had two natures, God and man, united in one person, that they were heretics and that Eutyches was correct. And you thought church history was boring. Then the unexpected happened. Emperor Theodosius, his horse stumbled, he fell off, broke his neck, and died. Smells like sovereignty to me. 
He was succeeded by his sister Pulcheria and her husband Marcion. And at the request of Leo, she called a new council, which met at Chalcedon in 451 AD. And it became known as the Fourth Ecumenical Church Council. It was at this council that those 520 bishops agreed on the incarnation of Jesus. This council condemned Dioscorus and Eutyches. Leo's letter was read, and you can find it online and read it, which stressed the two natures united in one person. And Leo's letter actually became the basis or the foundation for the definition of Chalcedon or the creed of Chalcedon that we're going to look at tonight. The Council of Chalcedon met for five sessions during October in 451 AD. The first session overturned the synod at Ephesus that had happened in 449, the Robbers' Council, where they declared that Eutyches was correct. But they graciously forgave Dioscorus, the manipulating and maneuvering guy who started all the Robbers' Council, the guy who sent the soldiers to beat Flavian up. They forgave him, and they even graciously appointed him to preside over the first session. The decision of the first session declared that Eutyches was a heretic and an exonerated Flavian because they had said at the robber's council that he was wrong and he was a heretic. But they sent a clear message to Dioscorus, the manipulating and maneuvering friend of Eutyches. You are no longer calling the shots theologically for the church. In fact, after the first council... Uh, was over. Before the second one appeared, Dioscorus refused to show up. They kept trying to call him back. He uh, eventually was excommunicated and he went into exile. By the fourth session of the Council of Chalcedon, they were looking closely at Leo's letter, Leo's tome, which set the stage for session number nine, which happened on October 22nd, 451 AD. At the fifth session, the Council of Chalcedon came up with the definition of Chalcedon or the creed of Chalcedon that you hold in your hands. It was written and signed by 520 bishops who all agreed. They agreed with Leo's letter. They agreed that Jesus has two natures, God and man, united in one person. Here's what church historian Stephen Nichols says. The bishops at Chalcedon did not want anyone leaving the council, or anyone in the church for that matter, without fully understanding what they were saying about Christ. They wanted no misunderstanding in terms of what they were accepting as orthodoxy and rejecting as heresy. We may not always understand or even immediately appreciate the precise and technical language theologians use to express what the Bible teaches on any given subject. And to be sure, sometimes theologians can exercise their gift for making the simple and clear complex and obtuse. And you may be thinking, I'm doing that tonight. At times, however, the situation demands precise and technical vocabulary. The bishops gathered at Chalcedon were not looking to make the clear complex, nor were they desirous of alienating the untrained laity in the church. The heresies that they were contending with had blurred the lines of orthodoxy and what had been accepted at the Council of Nicaea. The heretics had cleverly shaped and molded their teaching to coincide with some biblical text and to, at least in part, sound plausible. In light of this situation, Chalcedon needed to stake out the boundaries with precision, and that it did. 
This is what the Council of Churches, this is what the 520 bishops agreed upon in the Chalcedonian Creed or the definition of Chalcedon. It's in your notes and we'll read through it and then we'll, we'll backtrack and unpack some of the phrases. This is what they said concerning the incarnation. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead, And complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable or human soul and body, of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards his manhood, like us in all respects apart from sin. As regards his Godhood, begotten of the Father before the ages, but yet as regards his manhood, begotten for us men and for our salvation, of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, that's God and man, and hear what they say about God and man, without confusion, without change, without division, Without separation, the distinction of those two natures, God and man, being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God the Word, Lord Jesus Christ." even as the prophets from earliest times spoke of him and our Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us and the creed of the fathers has handed down to us. Now, notice what Chalcedon is saying here. Notice what the 520 bishops are telling us in these phrases. It says that Jesus was like us in all respects apart from sin. As regards his Godhead, begotten of the Father before the ages, that means he's the eternal Son of God. But yet as regards his manhood, begotten for us men in our salvation of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer. So what they're saying is that Jesus is just like every human being born into this world, except he never sinned. They're saying that Jesus is of the same nature as God the Father, that he has always been the eternal Son of God, that he was never created contrary to the Jehovah's Witnesses. They're saying that Jesus was born into this world, into space and time, even though he always existed in eternity past. They are seeing that Jesus came for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the God-bearer. And we talked a little bit about this last Sunday morning, that Mary was Theotokos, the God-bearer, that she's the mother of God. And it it makes us Protestants uncomfortable because of what we hear of Catholic theology. But when uh, they are saying that Mary is Theotokos, the God-bearer, they're saying that she gave birth to Jesus, that, that she was his mommy, that she carried the eternal son of God in her womb for nine months, that, that she wrapped him up when he was seconds old and, and he was all covered with blood and afterbirth, and that she nursed him and that in that moment Chalcedon is saying that Jesus, a frail little newborn baby nursing his mother, that he was the eternal son of God. Remember, you can't pick and choose when Jesus is God and when he is man. 
as a little baby boy nursing his mother for the first time and feeling the warmth of her breast on his cheeks, Jesus was the God-man. Chalcedon continues when it says, One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. Chalcedon is saying that Jesus had two natures, that he was God and that he was man. But how did these two natures exist in one person? Here we get the four withouts of Chalcedon, and they're very important, very extremely important for us to understand the incarnation. These withouts describe what we must say when we speak of the two natures God and man coming together in the one person, Jesus Christ. How do the two natures come together? Chalcedon says they come together without confusion, that when they come together, they don't get mixed and murky. From last week, who said the two natures of Christ were confused? It was Eutyches. He believed that the divine nature gobbled up and absorbed the human part, and then they became a third thing. Chalcedon is also saying that when the two natures come together, God and man in the one person, Jesus, that they do so without change. That nothing is changed in his godness and nothing is changed in his humanity as a man. Who changed the natures as we looked at the last few weeks? Eutyches believed that his nature was changed, that he was no longer God and man united, but that he became this third thing. Chalcedon continues by saying they come together without division. Do you remember who divided up the two natures? Nestorius divided up the two natures. Remember, Nestorius believed that sometimes Jesus acted like man and sometimes he acted like God. That when, when he was doing the miraculous things like walking on the water, then Nestorius said, that's God. That, that's God acting. And when Jesus was asleep in the boat, well, that's man. Chalcedon also says that the two natures come together without separation. Again, this goes against Nestorius, who said you can separate. Sometimes he acts like God, sometimes like man. So we don't want to leave Apollinarius out. Do you guys remember Apollinarius from a few weeks ago? Chalcedon even addressed uh, Apollinarius. If you see the phrase, it says, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable or human soul and body. They are talking about Apollinarius when they say that. Remember, Apollinarius believed that Jesus did not have a human spirit, that the logos or the word controlled him. So Chalcedon is calling out. They are naming names here, basically, Nestorius, Apollinarius, and Eutyches. Now, notice this phrase in Chalcedon. It says, The distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person in subsistence, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one in the same Son and only begotten God the Word, Lord Jesus Christ. The distinction of natures, God and man, when they come together, being in no way annulled by the union, that when they come together, it doesn't annul anything in either of those natures. The distinction 
of both natures is not annulled. So what is distinct about human nature? What is distinct about humanity and human beings that we are physical, bodily? So Chalcedon is saying that when Jesus takes on human flesh, he really takes on human flesh, that he is a real human being. And you've heard me say repeatedly over the last few weeks that he had stinky armpits and and big toes and earlobes and a liver, that he was a human being just like us except without sin. Chalcedon is saying that Jesus is both God and man, and those two natures, when they come together, are united. They're not messed up or tweaked in any way, but both natures exist in the one person, Jesus. So it begs the question, if there is no change in Jesus' deity and there is no change in his humanity when both natures come together in the one person, then we have to ask ourselves, if we human beings are limited in knowledge and Jesus was a human being, was Jesus limited in knowledge? Well, let me ask you. Are human beings limited in knowledge? Yes, that would be the answer. Was Jesus a human? Yes. Therefore, Jesus was in his human nature limited in knowledge. Let me ask you, are human beings omnipresent? Can we be everywhere at once? No. We'd like to, though, wouldn't we? Was Jesus a human? Yes, he was. Therefore, Jesus was in his human nature. He was not in his human nature omnipresent as a human being. His body could only be in one place at one time. Let me ask you, are human beings omnipotent? Do we have all power? No. Was Jesus a human? Yes. Therefore, Jesus in his human nature was not omnipotent. Now, let me ask you, are human beings temporal? Do we have a beginning? Yes. We have a beginning. Was Jesus human? Yes. Therefore, Jesus was in his human nature a temporal being. He had a a beginning. He was born in a stable in Bethlehem, even though he was the eternal son of God. Chalcedon is saying that the unity of the two natures, God and man, does not nullify the properties of either of those Natures. Nothing in Jesus' deity is changed and nothing in Jesus' humanity is changed when they come together in the one person, Jesus. There is unity. Neither nature gets tweaked in either way. Now let's go the other way now. Let me ask you, is God eternal? Yes. So when Jesus takes on limited humanity, does his divine nature cease to be eternal? No. Is God omniscient? Yes. Does he know everything? Yes. So when Jesus takes on humanity, does his divine nature cease to be omniscient? No. Is God omnipotent? Yes. So when Jesus takes on humanity, does his divine nature cease to be omnipotent? No. Is God omnipresent? Yes. So when Jesus takes on humanity and takes on a body, does his divine nature cease to be omnipresent? No. No part of Jesus' nature as God was changed and no part of Jesus' humanity was changed. He did not give up any of his divine attributes in the incarnation. Jesus gave up 
no aspect of his deity that he is God when he became man. Some of you have been taught from Philippians 2 over the years, perhaps, that Jesus laid aside some of his divine properties and his attributes when he took on human flesh. That's heresy. Jesus did not lay aside any of his divine attributes in the incarnation. Tell me, if God removes part of himself, is he still God? No, he's not. What you end up having, if you believe that Jesus laid aside and didn't become, like, took a part of his deity away, what you are is you are Apollinarius in reverse. You're saying that Jesus is 100% man, but maybe only 50% God. Do you believe that Jesus is part God and fully man? I hope you don't. If he laid aside any of his attributes, Jesus ceases to be God. God is not into amputation, if you didn't know that. He doesn't just hack away at himself with a machete in order to become a human being. Like, I've got to get rid of part of myself, a part of my attributes, so that I can become a human being. No, Chalcedon is saying that Jesus is fully God. So turn to Philippians chapter 2, and let me show you a passage that is often misunderstood where people think that Jesus gave up some of his attributes. Philippians chapter 2, we'll look at verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When Paul says that Jesus emptied himself, he does not mean that Jesus gave up any of his attributes. Because what does the text say? He emptied himself, now catch the next phrase, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Jesus emptied himself by actually taking something on humanity. What he emptied himself of was his rights. He became a slave, a nobody. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He gave up all of his rights and died a cross death. He emptied himself by being born a human, by taking on something. Therefore, this is what Chalcedon is saying. Everything that God is, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, Jesus is too. And everything that man is in his humanity, limited, temporal, Jesus is too, yet without sin. What Chalcedon is saying is that the distinctiveness of each nature is not nullified by the union. Everything that God is, Jesus is, and everything that humanity is, Jesus is, except for sin. Chalcedon continues. It says, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person in subsistence, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one in the same Son and only begotten God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's talk about a few of these phrases. Preserved and coming together. 
means that all that God is is found in Jesus and all that humanity is in, is found in Jesus except sin. Jesus is the God-man. Fully God, fully man, with all the properties of God, with all the properties of man, united in one person with the distinctive properties of each of those natures being preserved. That's how you describe Jesus. That's orthodox Christian belief. To believe or teach anything else is not Christian. Remember the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD? They explained Jesus Christ before the incarnation, that he was of the same essence and nature as God the Father. Nicaea addressed Jesus before the incarnation. Chalcedon comes along and addresses Jesus after the incarnation. Nothing about the incarnation changes the godness of Jesus. And nothing about the incarnation changes the humanity of Jesus. The difference between us humans and Jesus is that Jesus was a human being without sin. All of the omnis of God remain intact in the person of Jesus. Jesus is And get ready because your minds are going to blow here, okay? Jesus is omnipresent in a limited human body. Jesus is omniscient in a limited human body. Jesus is omnipotent in a limited human body. He is fully God, all of those omnis, and fully man, except without sin, united in one person. Let me ask you, how can all of these... How can Jesus be all of these omnis and yet limited? Is there a contradiction? No, because the unity of these two natures occur in the one person, Jesus Christ. He is omni and limited at the same time. If he had a business card, it would say Jesus Christ, omni, limited. And your mind would go, how can that be? Can I give you an illustration or a metaphor from creation to explain the incarnation? No, I cannot. To do so, I believe, would be heresy because there is nothing in this world like the God-man. There is nothing in this world like God. So all pictures and illustrations cold from creation that we try to use to explain the Trinity or the God-man Jesus, I think is heresy and seriously in error. Why? Because there is nothing in creation that we can point to and say, that's just like the Trinity. That's just like the God-man. There is nothing in creation that we can point to and say, that is 100% God and 100% man, united. What the creeds of Nicaea, and the creeds of Chalcedon do, and the creeds of the church, they draw circles around what we can and can't say about the Trinity and the God-man Jesus Christ. But that doesn't satisfy us, does it? We are American. We demand answers. Inquiring minds want to know. We want to know it all. All we want for Christmas is our questions answered with a pretty bow on top. Understand this, Grace. The Bible is not moved by your hunger to know all of the answers. 
The Bible is not moved by your hunger to know all of the answers. The Bible is not your whipping boy to satisfy all of your curiosities. Pastors are not your servants who must answer all of your Bible and theological questions. Pastors are not servants to all the curious questions of their congregations. Pastors are servants to the text of Scripture. Congregations and pastors are depraved. Congregations don't know what questions to ask. And pastors don't either, because when we ask questions, we start coming up with sermons that say how to be five steps to be a good husband or seven steps to be a good neighbor. Even pastors don't get the questions right. But what the Bible does is it answers the most important questions. Pastors love to answer your questions and help you. We do. Okay, We love to help you. We want to help you. But we will not be able to answer them all because the Bible doesn't answer them all. So come and ask us questions. We will do our best. But you've got to be prepared for an answer like this, okay? I used to know the answer to that question. I even wrote a paper on it in seminary. But I'm getting older and I have five kids and my brain is a lot slower. Let me go and look it up and I'll get back to you. So if you have questions, you've got to expect that answer from me or any of the other guys. Or a que- an answer like... The Bible doesn't address that. It's a mystery. Let it humble you. God knows everything, and you don't, and you never will. Or be prepared for just the simple answer that I say a lot. I don't know. I'm free in the gospel to say, I don't know. What the creeds of the church have done is only draw circles around what we are to believe about God. Are there questions? Yes. Are we curious? Yes. But this is all we can say about the incarnation of Jesus. Jesus is the God-man, fully God, fully man, with those two natures united in one person, and no change occurs in either the divine nature or the human nature when unified in the person of Jesus. That's all we have. The unity lies in the person of Jesus who is eternal and temporal. Who is limited in knowledge and omniscient. Who had no beginning. He's eternal. And he's also a person who was born at the beginning of the first century. He is omnipotent but limited in power. He is omnipresent but limited in presence. Why is this Orthodox Christian faith? Because Jesus is both. He is God, and he is just like us in every respect, yet without sin. The 520 bishops at Chalcedon have not answered all of our questions. Chalcedon has only taken the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the tradition of the church, and they tell us, this is what you can say about the God-man, Jesus Christ. All we want for Christmas is our questions answered. We want our curiosities satisfied. Inquiring minds want to know. Chalcedon has merely drawn circles around what we can say about Jesus the God-man. The definition of Chalcedon that you hold in your hand is not seeking to define the union of God and man in the sense of explaining how it took place. Rather, 
It is setting limits. Limits beyond which error lies. The pastors and bishops of Chalcedon are saying to us today, cross these lines, cross these parameters, and you will be in error, and you will be wrong. Or, as one of my heroes, Dr. Jeff Bingham, says, this is, after all, what church leaders do. They explain to their congregations acceptable parameters within which they are to understand and interpret the Bible. They also point out unacceptable interpretations. Good theology doesn't just happen. Church leaders who care for their congregations don't allow unacceptable thinking about the Trinity and Christ's person to go unchecked. Church leaders must first be the church's theologians. Do the councils of Nicaea, Constantinople, and Chalcedon answer all of our questions about the Trinity and the Incarnation? No, but they do give us boundaries within which we find acceptable interpretations of the Scriptures about the Trinity and the two natures of Christ. We may not have all the answers, but we know things we should say and believe, and we know views we shouldn't hold. Mature Christians may be more than those who know and confess true doctrine, but they can never be less. Mature Christians may be more than those who know and confess true doctrine, but they can never be less. Scripture is less concerned about answering all of your questions and satisfying all of your curiosities, and it is more concerned with you and me imitating the God-man, Jesus Christ. But we want to know, don't we? We want to know questions like, how can Jesus say that he doesn't know the day when he will return? And that bugs us. Matthew 24, 36, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And that bugs us. The ESV Study Bible, I think, has the best answer to this. How Jesus could have limited knowledge and yet know all things is difficult. And I wish they would have put duh in parentheses there. How Jesus could have limited knowledge and yet know all things is difficult. And much remains a mystery. Again, another place for a duh. And much remains a mystery, for nobody else has been both God and man. What do we do with the mystery of the God-man Jesus? We marvel at him. Marvel today at the mystery of the God-man. Worship in wonder. Be surprised. Stand in awe of him. Be flabbergasted. There is no one like the God-man, Jesus. Stand in awe of him today. Your Savior, who gave his life for you, stand in awe and be flabbergasted and say, I don't know how you could be God and man at the same time. And then, after you spend time basking in his presence, in awe of him and who he is and marveling at him, then take a moment and appreciate And value and give thanks for the 520 bishops who labored at the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD. Because they gave us parameters with which to speak of the mysterious incarnation of the second person of the Trinity.
We'll close with a quote by Stephen Nichols, church historian. He says, The Chalcedonian Creed is important not only for what it says, but also for what it doesn't even try to say. It avoids trying to explain how the two natures come together. It just states that they do. It avoids trying to solve perplexities raised by the union of the human and divine natures. Instead, it declares that Christ is fully and entirely both, while at the same time, one person. Leo, who we talked about earlier tonight, would say in one of his sermons, We should not be disturbed, but rather strengthened by these mysteries. Chalcedon recognized that when you're dealing with the person of Christ, you're dealing with a mystery. Yet Chalcedon also recognized that when you're dealing with the person of Christ, you're dealing with the biblical material about him. What Chalcedon declares, consequently, carefully navigates what the Bible teaches without going beyond what it teaches. Don't be disturbed by these mysteries as your brain hurts trying to comprehend that Jesus could be limited in human knowledge when he was on the earth and yet he knew everything. Don't be disturbed by the fact that when he came out of his mother's birth canal and was still connected to her by her umbilical cord and he nursed for the first time, that at that moment as the eternal son of God, he knew everything there would ever be to know in this universe and yet at the same time, he didn't know anything. Don't be disturbed by that. Don't be disturbed by those mysteries. Be strengthened by them because they are true. Let's pray. Father, we admit that we are humbled by the incarnation. We live in a world like the National Enquirer of days gone by where inquiring minds want to know and we value study and we value searching things out, but we hit a wall where we just say, I don't know. May we not despair. May, not, may we not be troubled. May we just stand in awe that you are so far above us. May we marvel at your son who could nurse his mommy and then grow in wisdom, grow in knowledge, and then give his life for us one day. And he could do all of that without ever sinning one time. I stand amazed at Jesus Christ tonight, Father. May we be thinking about him for the rest of the evening and for this week. In Jesus' name, amen.